and welcome to COM42 Cast, Episode 2 Space Birds Love Cyberbags. My name is Mikhail Pavlikovsky, and today with me, Liran Haimovic, the CTO and co founder at Rookout, also frequently a speaker. Rookout empowers engineers to solve customer issues five times faster by making debugging easy and accessible in any environment. See what Rookout can do for you at www.rookout.com. Hello, Liran. Great to have you here today. Hey, Mikolai. Great being here as well. Can you tell me what's the deal with Rookout? What the name came from? Is it from the song, you know? Rookout! You, you were there at the beginning, right? Yeah, I was there from the very beginning. The name actually comes from the name of the bird, Rook, which is a very clever raven that's good at solving puzzles. You can actually throw some food in a glass of water and it's going to use stones and stuff to get the water levels up. And you can actually use uh, tools such as uh, small tree branches. And essentially, Rookout is about having a very smart bird on your end that allows you to instantly extract any piece of data you want from your application so that you can see what's going on. Yeah, so kind of eagle eye plus a smart bird. Okay, makes sense. Um, you know, I always have a lot of respect for people who jump into building a company from scratch. That's quite a challenge and, and a risk too. Was there like any moment that made you think, okay, yeah, this is worth doing. Let's just jump into that and do it. Was there like any single moment or you just knew you kind of needed to do that? So we were exploring the realm of cybersecurity and DevOps and dev tooling. We met with so many engineering leaders and so many individual contributors. Every single time this problem came up, it's my code, it's running somewhere remote and I just can't get it. And we found people trying to spend so much time and effort solving it, but kind of solving it backward, I guess. Whether it's about getting your CI-CD pipeline to be ever fast enough that you can just add logs on the fly, but it's never fast enough. About trying to replicate your production environment locally, whether through fancy orchestration toolings, database migration tooling, service virtualization toolings. And not only are you spending so much time and effort on that, again, it's never accurate enough. We met some companies that would spend two or three days doing database migrations every time a customer reported a bug, just to be able to observe it and see what's going on. This pain was so universal, we knew we had to do something about it. Yeah, I can feel the pain already, you know, remotely from here. And you just knew, okay, we need to fix that. And you went for it. Yeah, it just felt like we had a new angle on it, a fresh perspective. And we figured that at the end of the day, while we traditionally use log lines to monitor production, the act of updating those log lines, of updating those metrics, was very cumbersome. It was releasing a new version and deploying it with everything that comes as part of the process. And that's a very big process, a very big risk, a very big change we're doing. And at the end of the day, all we're trying to do is change a single line of code, sometimes even flip a single bit in memory. And we're spending hours doing that. And we figured there had to be another way. And so we kind of taken to our cybersecurity mindset and skill set and our experience and kind of built something that allows you to do it on the fly, that updates the application for you on the fly to collect any piece of data you need uh, without having to spend any time or effort doing it yourself. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig deeper into that in a second. But tell me, what's your favorite and least favorite bit about working in a startup and especially how did all of that dynamic get affected by the biggest pandemic in the living memory? 
I love the experience of creating, of making stuff that wasn't there. And in many ways, building a startup is the ultimate experience of that. It's not just about building the product. It's about building the company. It's about building the culture. It's about hiring the people and training them. A company is kind of a living, breathing thing in a way. It, it's more than some of its part. It's all the people, all the product, all the customers. And seeing it all come together, knowing you had a big part in making it happen. I think that's my favorite part. My least favorite part, I would say it's about uncertainty, especially if you think about it, when you create a startup, you literally create a business that's going bankrupt every day, because by definition, you're spending more than you're earning, and you're constantly relying on the next injection of cash coming down somewhere down the road. So while not necessarily a lot of personal risks, there's definitely a lot of pressure. Think about it, how would you want to be the CEO or a C-level executive in a company that's literally going bankrupt every day? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And also that actually makes me think, I was watching this Kurzgesagt video the other day and it really stuck with me that they were talking about the briefing process and how the energy is being released, you know, and the basic bottom line is that, that we're constantly dying and with every breath, we reset the timer for like two minutes and that's how we live our lives. That's kind of basic what you describe here with the startup except that the oxygen is replaced with money right definitely so <laughs> but i'm not sure how many people would be comfortable with the thought that every breath they're taking is literally bringing them a step closer to death it got deep so one last random question before we jump into the rookout if you could have any animal at all as a pet would it be a rook i think that's a good question i actually have a dog right now that dog really loved chasing after ravens and crows and stuff. So if I had a rook and that dog side by side, it might get messy. <laughs> Although it's probably better than having a cat and a bird. You gave a talk recently at COM42 about understandability. Could you talk a little bit about how that's different from observability, the other buzzword that we keep using these days, and you know what the common things are and how it differs in how you apply it? Observability has been around for a while now, I think over five years, and it stems from the need of SREs, ops, to know what's going on in the system. Essentially, they deploy a system, it contains some code, some configuration. You deploy it somewhere, hopefully in the cloud. And then you have to know how it's doing. I mean, you can't see into the servers themselves. They are remote. There are potentially many of them. And you're trying to figure out, is my system working properly? And there are many definitions of that, but they tend to be somewhat strict. How many requests am I serving per second? What's my latency? What's my error rates? And how can I break that down throughout the customer experience, through different APIs? If I'm in a microservice environment, I probably want to see this breakdown per microservice and see their interactions. And it's kind of getting the big picture and knowing what's going on. Uh, that's the essence of observability. Understandability, in a way, goes a step deeper and goes a bit different route. Understandability is about how well do I understand the system? Not only how it's doing, but also what it's supposed to be doing, what it was originally meant to be doing and what it's doing now, and kind of so on and so forth. To really understand the system, we don't get that luxury of just seeing it from a bird's eye view and knowing everything is all right in general. We often have to answer deeper questions. And that's kind of what software engineers do on, the, on a daily basis. 
how is that feature working? Why is this customer getting a five and the other customer is getting three? Why for that customer the screen is blue and for the other customer it's green? And it's not just about knowing that everything is good, that customer is supposed to be getting blue and that customer is supposed to be getting green. It's also about understanding the algorithms behind it, understanding the flows, understanding the configurations. And unfortunately, this means that you constantly have to get new questions, whether you're resolving a bug or trying to design a new feature or just adapting an existing feature. The questions keep changing on a daily, even sometimes even hourly basis. And so the data you need to answer those questions is always shifting as well. Whether it's about the source code itself, the inputs and the outputs of the systems, the configuration and state of the system, various dependencies you might be interested in, maybe even more importantly, how they all play together. Okay, so is that just the school of thought? Is that the methodology? Is that the set of tools? Is that a t-shirt? Which one is it really the understandability? I, it's a bit of everything. I would say especially a t-shirt, but I think it's first and foremost about school of thought, about knowing that, I mean, one example I like the most is that the fact that when we got our basic computer science training, whether in the university or anywhere else, you had those simple exercises, I don't know, sort a data structure, read a file and pass its content. And those are kind of exercises that each of us got through after a few hours on that first computer science training. And now we expect all of ourselves to be able to do it in a matter of you know, minutes quite often. And yet when we get those tasks in the context of large complex environments, they often end up taking weeks. And often that's the difference. The difference between plugging those two lines of code into a huge system, it's all about knowing when to plug them and what to plug. And that's about understandability. So it's not just about being able to do things, it's about understanding the scope and understanding how it all comes together. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So basically, observability is cool, you can see things, but then the next step, we call it now understandability, kind of level up. So you touched on a lot of things that people typically have problems with, like you mentioned the time that it takes to get feedback. Is that what people hate the most about debugging, like from your customers' experiences? Is that like the number one challenge? or? Is that something that you or other people hate even more than that? It's often that feeling of helplessness that gets around when you're kind of stuck. And obviously sometimes you get a bug and then you're likely, oh, I know that I made a mistake and I forgot a dot or a slash or I need to reduct one. And that's kind of brings us back to understandability. You know the code so well that once somebody tells you the symptom of the bug, you instantly know where in the code you made a mistake and how you need to fix it. And that's where your understandability is very good. But quite often, it's not that easy. I would say more often than not. Whether it's because you're missing logs or missing metrics, or you're, you don't have access to the customer data, or you don't have full, the full picture of, of what's actually going on and what are the environment the code is operating in, and all of a sudden you're kind of stuck and you feel helpless. And this feeling is often aggravated when it's a, a customer that reported a bug, especially if it's an important customer or something that has a big impact on the company. And now everybody in the company is looking at you, whether it's the tech lead or the engineering lead, the solution engineer, and definitely the marketing and sales departments. And everybody is kind of staring at you and saying, you have to fix the bug. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on. 
that's a terrible feeling especially when it's like a race condition that's very rare and only produces itself once or twice and you have real trouble reproducing that we recently found a couple of memory leaks within the v8 uh, engine itself and when put under extreme pressure and that was so frustrating we literally spent weeks hunting those uh, memory leaks only to find them within the uh, v8 engine itself which was pretty crazy that's also you know we use so much open source technology and so many dependencies that sometimes really hard we work a lot with kubernetes and most of the time when you did find something that really looks like a bug if you look deep enough there's probably someone who uh, ran into that already but there was this bug like literally the other week when we were trying to track it down and eventually we found a ticket that was put in by someone a year ago and only uh, updated like a few days when someone actually managed to reproduce like a race condition when a connection was being closed. I think your point around open source is another great example of where logging doesn't work well enough because when it's your code and you want to add a log line, then that's quite easy. You go to the code, you edit the line, you rebuild, you re redeploy. But what happens when you want to add just one log line to an open source project? An open source project, all you have to do is edit the code, but then you have to create the entire build process and packaging process and dependency process on your machine. There is a huge difference between being able to read the source code for an open source project and being able to build it efficiently into your own build process and into your dependency management process. And that's the difference between, you know, 10 seconds to type the line and potentially days of work of setting up the development environment. And that's another great use case for Rookout because when you, you can instantly set a breakpoint, just like a traditional debugger, you can debug anything. It doesn't matter if it's your code or if something else. Debugging is easier than editing in many cases. Yeah, and especially you know, when everything is now cloud native and microservices and everything, you have all these processes running remotely and you have to get to them. So I feel like at this stage, the suspense is unbearable. So tell us, how does Rookout work under the hood? So under the hood, we offer five SDKs, one for the JVM, one for the .NET runtime, one for the Python runtime, for the Node runtime, and for the Ruby runtimes. And each of those SDKs is built a bit different and yet very closely related. And what we do is we essentially map out the code in memory. We map out the class objects, the functions, and all of that. And we, we find a memory representation of that code and we allow you to edit it. So when you go and say, go into main.java and line 40 and I want to see what's happening there, we find in memory which function main.java at line 40 is. And then we recompile that function with additional instrumentation code that extracts data on the fly so that the next time this function is called and line 40 is hit, you're going to get to see what's going on inside of it. Okay. So let's say I have a Java application. Your SDK is some kind of Java agent. It starts and then I guess it modifies my classes on the fly with your extra debugging code, right? How safe is that? Very safe. <laughs> Very safe. Like everything else we're doing, it's about trusting our infrastructure. Whether it's the Java virtual machine itself, you could ask how safe is that, you know, taking a Java bytecode that's stored in zip files and running it in memory. That has its own set of challenges. And the thing is, at Rookout, we take great pride at our work. And that's where we focus on, doing that in the most secure and possible way. I know there have been some alternatives that kind of allow you to do it yourself approach, where you can use various instrumentation libraries to do it yourself. And obviously there is a lot that can go wrong. We narrow it down. 
we do a very specific uh, set of data collection that's heavily tested on our end, as well as we add a lot of policy-based safeties on top of that. We have rate limiting and heat limiting. We have a sandbox control that ensures you don't modify the application. You just collect data from it on the fly and the correctness what we impacted. And so we ensure that both uh, the code will remain valid on the one hand. And on the other hand, we ensure that the application's overall performance and correctness won't be modified because we tightly control what's going to be executed. So it sounds to me a little bit like a debugger light kind of thing that not everything's wide open, but you have like the specific set of things that you want to look at and you basically expose a debugger like kind of interface. Is that the right way of thinking about that? I think that's a great way to look at it. We strive to bring the experience of a debugger, also the experience of a profiler, to every environment. And obviously some trade-offs have to be made. You, you can't stop the application because if you're going to stop a production application or a service mesh application, things aren't going to go too well. We simulate, we provide you a very close experience. We collect the data, we show you snapshots, have various data controls and security controls in place to ensure you can use it in a production environment and kind of try to bring you the best of both worlds. This is as close as you can get to running a debugger in production. Gotcha. And the SDKs that you mentioned, does it mean that you need to build your application with them or does all of that happen at the startup, the kind of enrichment without you actually having to instrument the code? It's a bit of both. It depends on the runtime itself. Some runtimes can be, we support instrumentation at runtimes. For some of them, you have to compile us in. But either way, it's a 10-minute installation process and you're good to go. Gotcha. Now, I was just thinking, you know, I have this massive bag. I spent two weeks on it and I give up. I need Rook. <laughs> I need Rook out. Okay, so I go and then do I need to like recompile my thing or do I just like attach some kind of sidecar that will do the instrumentation on the fly? So it's not a sidecar, but it's a quick package you just add. You can get it up and running in under 10 minutes and find the bug 10 times faster than you would otherwise. Hey, no way. You said five times faster on your website. Now it's 10. <laughs> which one is it? <laughs> so, you know, it depends on which marketing person you speak to at that time of day. Okay. We're seeing uh, customers report anything from five to 10 times faster. So it's more about how conservative we are with uh, specific data. And in terms of performance, you said that trying to give the best of the both worlds, and I'm guessing with the limit and just trying to put uh, as little as that instrumentation as possible. Do you have any benchmarks that we could look at to see, you know, this is 1% overhead, it's all good, or we kind of have to trust that with that? So we do have benchmarks we can provide. Not everything is public, but we'd be happy to provide. As a rule of thumb, I can say that a single breakpoint is under one millisecond for most runtimes. And mm -hmm. it's, it's often a lot under one millisecond latency. And on top of that, we have various mechanisms, such as heat limiting or rate limiting. So even if you set a breakpoint in a very hot loop, it's just going to move into sampling mode or automatically disable based on various policies you can configure. So you went with this active approach into you know building this custom solution for all the different runtimes. And I know that a lot of the industry right now is trying to leverage eBPF to get things at the Linux kernel mode. Do you also do any of that, you know, at the kind of Cisco level, or is that too coarse grain so that it's not necessarily useful to your users? So the answer is a bit of both, I guess. For now, we are focusing on the application core, on the code itself. We are looking at dynamic instrumenting other components in the future, such as eBPF, such as logging, such as other stuff. But 
even if you look at EVPF, which is a very interesting technology that's growing, there are various integrations. I think Node has a built-in EVPF engine, and things are changing very rapidly, very interesting there. As a whole, our, our focus is about being able to agilely and dynamically collect data and instrument. So wherever we go, we try to say, it's not our focus to collect you the same data day in, day out. There are many companies that do that, APMs, login integrators, and so on. And they're doing a great job at it. What we focus on is being able to collect you just the data you need with as little overhead as possible and being able to move it very, very fast so that you can change your mind in a matter of seconds on what you want to collect. And we don't want technology to hold you back. We want technology to empower you. And this actually goes beyond debugging. It goes into collecting analytics, collecting metrics, any piece of data you want from your software should be available within seconds rather than prioritizing new features and getting lots of work and so on. Makes sense. Different use case. And just a question. So you started, what, about four years ago, right? Something like that, which kind of correlates with Kubernetes becoming a thing. Is all of that because Kubernetes made it so hard to debug things that now you have to do solutions like that? Or is that just a coincidence that this happened roughly at the same time? So it's an interesting coincidence. On the one hand, we have customers from all realms, whether they're the most cutting edge, cloud native, even some serverless. On the other hand, we have a lot of customers still running in data centers with vertical scaling servers, Java application servers, and all of that. I would say we just mapped it a few months ago and we were very surprised to see that most of our customers are very deep into Kubernetes. I'm not sure if there it's because the pain is so much bigger in Kubernetes and especially in service mesh environments where you just can't set up decent development environments for your engineers. Or is it just a coincidence that those companies are more agile and more interested in adopting new technology? You no, know, I was kind of half joking. Kubernetes has some advantages and also makes things a bit more complex and another layer to, to, to explore. Okay, one more question. I noticed that you have a, a solid open source footprint on GitHub. Are you an open source company? kind of open source company. <laughs> Is there anything you recommend checking out on GitHub? We're not an open source company, at least not for now. It's always been a debate for us. A kind of how do we build the product in a way that's both useful from an open source perspective, yet still sustainable from a commercial perspective. And it's a tricky question we've been struggling with. At the meantime, we've tried to out to open source as much as we can. We've open source various tools we've built internally. For instance, we've built a tool we call Git Enforcer that allows you to enforce and automate various best practices over GitHub pull requests and so on. Actually, over the past couple of years, we've seen GitHub implement some of those features since then, which is pretty cool. But in the when we originally wrote it three years ago, much of it was lacking. So let's say a developer opens a pull request and they don't have a ticket to merge it yet because it just saw a bug as they were walking. They can just add a comment to the pull request and automatically get the Jira ticket for it so they can merge it. And all kinds of other cool utilities. So that's available as an open source project. We've also open sourced some of our research around integrating with browsers and stuff. And we are hoping to release some more of our core IP into open source this year. Awesome. That was really cool. I'm looking forward to trying out all of those things, really. I just want to 
close up with one question I think most of our audience might find useful. If you were to pick one single highest return on investment thing that you did for your tech career, what would it be? And would you recommend other people do that too? My career has been, I would say, pretty unorthodox, or at least compared to many people. In a way, I think that's the important thing I took is being independent and being able, uh, believing in yourself and your ability to learn. Just knowing that you can uh, pick up any topic you want, whether it's along the way with Rookout, I drew my knowledge from Python from basic to expert. I learned Java. I've learned JavaScript and I've learned Ruby. I've also upgraded my uh, uh, C-sharp knowledge and all of that pretty much on my own. And I think the important thing about software engineering is learning to learn. It's about knowing how to learn, uh, picking up new technologies, picking up new languages, and it's building that capabilities. And of course, wherever you're working, if there are smart colleagues around you, you definitely need to build on that, learn from them. But at the same time, it's important to both learn to learn, to build your capacity for learning, as well as gaining a deeper understanding of every technology you pick up, because you would see those themes returning. Different languages, different runtimes, they have a lot in common. And the more deeply you understand one, the easier it's going to be to understand the next. So always learning, always being inquisitive makes a huge difference in your ability to pick up new skills and technologies and uh, be a great engineer. Awesome. I like that. Building the tree branch by branch, you never know where the next branch might go. Thank you for that, Liran. If you want to check out Liran's company, once again, www.rookout.com. Thanks so much for coming. And I'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody.